0: Welcome to My Life, Chesedis Applied, episode 390. This program is dedicated in merit of Baruch bin ben and Miriam bas Sar Altois, and Yukusil ben Lea Rochel Rochel and Rochel Bas Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Toddes ben Miriam and Sara Bas Rochel So we are concluding the month of Shvat and about to enter the month of Adar uh, Rishin. This year is a leap year, a Shana called a pregnant year, because it has two others. This is of course to reconcile between the discrepancy of a lunar cycle and a solar cycle. So every uh, seven times, seven years in 19 year period, every seven times there's a leap year to reconcile that discrepancy. So we're in a leap year and we're going to be entering other the first other. So we'll speak about that. It's also the week of Pasha Truma. Chidus applied to Pasha Truma. This week, tragically, will also be the thirtieth site of uh, Pesulei Lepine, Pesulei Lapine, who uh, was killed and murdered tragically in this neighborhood. And we'll talk about that as well, and other good news and happy news, especially as we enter the month of Adar, Mishinichnas Adar Marbin Besimcha, as we enter Adar we are to increase in joy so let us begin with uh other so what do we learn first question of course is what lessons do we learn applied this applied to the concept of of other in general and especially this year other so let's begin because it's unique the leap year i mentioned the discrepancy Why is it so important to reconcile between a lunar and a cycle calendar? And the answer is, firstly, based on the pasuk, it says that Chodesh Aviv Pesach, should be in the spring. The spring, the seasons are determined by the solar calendar. The holidays are determined by the lunar calendar. Pesach is the 15th of the month of Nisan, which means two weeks or 15 days from the new moon of Nisan. Chodesh HaZalachem being that a lunar cycle is around 11 and some 11 and a half days shorter than a solar cycle. So if you just followed the lunar cycle, so yes, the first year, Pesach would have been in the spring. The next year, it would have been 11 days earlier. So okay, still not that much. But the next year, 22 days, approximately. And 33 days, at some point, Pesach would end up being in the winter. And then if you continue, it would be in the autumn and then it would be in the summer, and then back to the spring. So from this, from this verse, we learn that we should add, that we should add, we should, add, we should make a Shonu Mobedis, the Chachamim designated in their, their unbelievable fashion, calculated that every 19 years in the Mahzid of the cycle, if you make seven years, you add a month of, of 30 days. So basically every three years, close to three years, because we always want to keep months to 29 or 30 days. So the the discrepancy is 11, so every three years approximately is 33 days, but it's not exactly every three years, it's seven times in 19 years. And that resolves the issue, and basically it compensates for the lack, for those 11-day lack, and that turns it back into that Pesach will always be in the spring. But here's the big question, why is that so important? So what would be, why does the Tehran assisted be in the spring, and if Pesach was in the winter, or in the summer, or in the autumn? And here we go to the lunar and solar cycles. What exactly is that? Why do we count by the lunar cycle? And the nations of the world count by the solar cycle. And some only go by the lunar, and they don't even reconcile with the solar. Like the Muslim calendar. And some only do the solar calendar. So the, the moon and the sun, as Chassidus explains... And here you see how Chassidus applied, how Chassidus brings it alive. Um, Actually, just as an aside, someone wrote to me, I think you should change the name from applied Chassidus to living Chassidus, or Chassidus alive. I think it means the same thing, but just as as I thought. So you see how Chassidus brings it alive, that the lunar and the solar, exactly as the sun and the moon, are the two luminaries that God created on the fourth day of creation, and each one, symbolizes a different archetype. Solar energy, or the sun, is consistency. It's always shining brightly. Yes, there are sun flares, and the sun goes through its cycles, but really not so obvious to the naked eye. The moon is the exact opposite. It's all about cycles, phases. There's the new moon where nothing is there even, the birth of the new moon. There's the first, the first quarter, you see as crescent, the full moon on the 15th of the month, the third quarter. So the moon is waxing and waning until it gets, it's always being reborn. Which is one of the reasons why Chodesh comes from the word Chodesh, moon, month, from the word renewal, the renewal of the moon. The Chidush, the moon is constantly going through renewal, through birth, through waxing and waning, and then reborn again. What are these two energies? These two energies symbolize two forces that we need to have in our lives. Generally speaking, Yisrael, Damian, Malavana, the Jewish people are compared to the moon. The phases of the moon, the twists and turns, the ups and downs, There are times when we're shining brightly and the times, God forbid, that we are waning, reflective of the moon cycles. In a way, life is very much like that. Whereas the nations of the world have always been the dominant ones, always been the, the larger number, so there's a certain consistency to that. On the other hand, the Gemara tells us that the moon also has the quality of humility. It has no light of its own. It receives the light of the sun. So which one is greater? So if you talk about pure firepower, the sun is definitely brighter. But the moon has an element of malchus in the language of Chassidus and Kabbalah, which even though a light that has no light of its own, but that which it reflects is not just a mirror image. It adds a dimension, like, like the student teaches more to the teacher than the teacher than the teacher receives from his teachers and from his colleagues. It has that unique power, and the power of renewal. So, on one hand, we need to have consistent energy, correct, but primarily, we go through these stages, and that allows us also to be renewed. The sun doesn't get renewed, even though it's correct. We make a brichah sahashemesh every. 27 years, and so on, but the bottom line is, that's because of the cycle, but you don't see the renewal quite like we do with the moon every month. I said 27 years, every 29 years, yeah. So, but the moon, you see that newness every month. At the same time, however, it's important to also have roots a certain consistent foundation. And that's why we reconcile the two. So though we follow the moon cycle, but in order to not lose our connection, the makabel to the mashpia, which is a consistent flow coming from the sun, we also need that as well. So we need to grow, we need to change, we need to constantly be renewed, but we need to not just soar, but also have those deep roots that connect us, which is the sun's consistency. And that's one of the lessons that we learn in life. All healthy things have both these combinations. For example, in relationships, some people say, I want to have consistency, I want to have commitment. But sometimes it comes at the price of lack of spontaneity, lack of refreshness, lack of vitality. The moon is is the vitality. On the other hand, you meet sometimes, you have a a partner in your life, your spouse, and they're constantly spontaneous and they're always unpredictable. And then you wanna have that consistency. So you could say, well, can you have both? The answer is yes, you can have both. Like, look at a tree. On one hand, very deep roots, that's very consistent. They do not waver and change. And at the same time, that gives the power for the tree to blossom, to expand, for the branches and the leaves and the fruit, if it's a fruit tree, to grow higher and greater in all different directions. So we need to spread our wings, but we also need a nest on which we stand. So we have sun and moon integration, which is one of the lessons we learned from the Ibriyar, from the leap year. Now of all the months chosen, it's the last two months of the lunar cycle, because remember, Nisan is the first, will be the first in the lunar cycle. Tishrei is in the solar cycle. And, uh, and, and Nisan is this. So when do we add an extra month? it's in the other. But it's also interesting, It's month of other is also So now we have two months, a double joy. Because marbin means not just the first day you increase in joy, but every day, as the Rebbe emphasizes, we continue to grow in joy. So now we have almost 60 days, 59, 60 days of increasing in joy that leads us into the month of Geula, the month of redemption, which is the month of Nisan. So that's specifically around other. So as we enter the first month of other, this is some things to think about, the lessons in life, even though it seems to be just a calendar, but we know the Jewish calendar isn't just a way of measuring time and allowing us to schedule things, but rather much deeper than that time is energy. It's the flow of energy. Time reflects the divine cycles, the divine energetic cycles in existence and beyond existence that allows us to align ourselves to these rhythms. And as we do, we were able to navigate life in a much healthier way. And here's just a general lesson from, the, from the, the, the leap year. And specifically, it's all done with great joy. Because on the other hand, remember, it says the rabbim were always concerned when it came to a leap year. The year, 30 years ago, when the Rebbe had the stroke, was a leap year. And other months, why? Because a leap year also reminds us, of the discrepancy that the miyotah Why is the lunar cycle shorter than the solar cycle? One of the reasons was because of the diminishing of the moon, which is not considered a positive thing. So on one hand, it's a challenge, and it creates a diminishment, a discrepancy. But the Shnassi Ibra tells us that though there's a discrepancy and there is a certain concern, we find ways even when something is diminished. Every descent is in order to bring us to a greater ascent. So we have that lesson as well. And again, how do we fill that? How do we compensate? Not just compensate, with great joy. Which explains in Gemara that the Rebbe spoke about 30 years ago, this Shabbos Pasha Truma. And he began the Fabrengan, he spoke about the first month, it says, But it says, there's a strange Gemara, the Talmud says, just as when we enter the month of of the Saturday day of the Jewish calendar. And we diminish in joy, so too, when we enter other, we increase in joy. Okay, we understand the increase in joy, but what's the comparison? Just as we diminish, that's why we increase. Just as we diminish, so too do we increase. Why remind us even of the diminishment? We'll have enough reminder when it comes that month. But the point is, because the diminishment of the joy in of is also meant to be a stepping stone to increase in joy. And it's like the life cycles. It's not that when you go down, it's separate from compartmentalized. It's a stepping stone, kach, keshem kach. Just as we diminish, so too we do we increase. And that increase is actually increasing to complement and compensate for the decrease that happened in the month of of. There's also, of course, the interpretation of the Mukesh, the Mikha Salazar, the besimcha of as of enters the sad month. in of we diminish the weak, the sadness of of through joy. Hashem joy that's allowed through Torah Mitzvah, as the Reb emphasizes about the three weeks and the nine days. So. We have in that a dimension, not just joy, but the joy of others, which other, which is other, what's is venapachu. The joy of other is due to the fact that we came first through a, uh, almost a, a, tr- a tragic genocide. The decree of Zeta of Haman, La'abe, to completely destroy and annihilate all men, women, and Jewish men, women, and children. And the great joy is because it was transformed. It wasn't just a joyous day that they celebrate. It was a celebration that came after tremendous darkness. Which also indicates not just joy, but the joy of transformation, transforming the darkness to light. So, therefore, it also makes sense that though the diminishment of the moon is an aspect of a descent, of a concealment, as the Refriedik Rebbe in a famous mimer, Tofri Sadiq Aleph, in Al Kain uh, uh, Yemru, Toferi Sadiq Aleph, the Refriedik Rebbe explains that the uh, Chet Sadas, how could there be such a tremendous sin? That changed the entire world where did it come from it said it was rooted in the possibility because of the diminishment of the moon which in turn is rooted in the shvira sakel and the shattering of the containers in the world of toyu which in turn is rooted in the tzimtzum adishin the great concealment so you see that's all part of the concealment but we know it's tzimtzum b'shvila gili it's not an end in itself the concealment is in order to bring a deeper revelation so the concealment or the diminishment of the moon is ultimately to bring far greater that the moon will be, even greater than the sun, as it will be in the future, as explained the is that the Mashkabul, Ish Khaila Bail in the Kavit to of that the Maqkabal will reach the Etzem, which is even higher than all the Giluim and the revelations that come through earth, through light. So now a few questions that were asked in, in context of other. Is it significant that Is it significant that this year is a leap year and we get two months of other? Does that indicate that we have the potential to double the amount of simcha and joy? Has the Rebbe ever said that a leap year is a propitious time and has more opportunities for Mashiach to come because there's an extra 30 days in the year for him to do so? Okay, so this continuing from what we learned from the month of other and the significance of a leap year. So there's no question the Rebbe always emphasized this double month of double joy. And actually increasing every day more and more. But the Rebbe said it's also a perspicuous time. Look, it is, says, Mismach ge'ula le ge'ula, The reason the month of Adr. When Purim. Why do we celebrate Purim not in the first month of Adr? Which is the main month. And the second month is the additional one. So it's the Gemara that says, Mismach ge'ula le ge'ula. In order the Geula of Purim should be close to the Geula of, Nis, of Pesach month to month. So the second month is obviously the month that's adjacent to and follows right into the month, that leads right into the month of, of Nisan. So you see from that, the Ad is connected to Geula. Now the fact is, even Rishon, even though you don't have Purim, the full Purim, we still have a Purim cotton That remembers, at least a reminder of the idea. So I don't recall the Rebbe saying that because of the 60 days, we have more time for Mashiach to come. I mean, the truth is, Mashiach can come any day. So I'm not sure, just because there's another month, but it's very likely the Rebbe definitely connected it with Gaul. That's the Rebbe did, especially in the years Memtes and Nun and Nun Nunbeis. So it's possible, but I have to look that up. But, but frankly, hey, the Rebbe spoke about Mashiach. Is on, we are is, is literally we're at the threshold of the coming of Mashiach. So for sure, when we understand these ideas, other being a time of joy, and not just joy, transforming the darkness of Gaulus into Gaula, that this is a propitious time and a fitting time for the Gaula. Dear Rabbi, Jacobson, we, dear Rabbi Jacobson, we have been told that it's a good idea to postpone court, case, court cases to the month of Adar, because we have good luck in that month to win. Correct. Would it be a good idea for, for someone during the month of Adar to go to a Besdin and bring a case against Hashem, against God, for wrongly delaying the revelation of Mashiach because as the Rebbe has said, we have already polished the buttons and Mashiach should have been here already. And since the case will be heard in Adar. We have better luck that we will win and that the dayanim can rule that Hashem is required by Torah Law to send Mashiach immediately. Okay, a very um, creative idea. Look, we have stories about Eden taking Hashem to Adin and then of course, because it was like the sun was setting so then they postponed the Daav Mincha. There different stories and jokes told about this. So if it's done in a respectful and reverent way, yes. Um, which is... The Rebbe has no problem with us challenging him, and uh, that's what he wants, to us to pray and and to demand and to cry. I remember when they first started singing, we want Mashiach now, we don't want to wait. So no one knew how the Rebbe would react. Someone standing near me told me, I don't think the Rebbe's gonna like the expression, we don't want to wait. We want Mashiach now, demanding. And of course, not only did the Rebbe accept it, he accepted and embraced it many times and told us to sing the song. And then later years, I mean, after the song began, which was in the early times of Tzivus Hashem, approximately 1981, the Rebbe actually started bringing from the chidah, Mechakaloi that it's a mitzvah to wait for him, and demand even, that's part of bringing Mashiach, is actually demanding. Now, obviously done with the right way, and all with the right intentions. So, any opportunity, fine. Now, to find a bezin that's going to actually sit in a dentata, that's another story. I'm not going to get involved in the managing of this, But it's an interesting idea, which I read, put it out for the public. It's out there now, and if anybody wants to pursue that, I would just suggest that probably would be helpful to do what the Rebbe said, (laughs) to do what we can to bring Mashiach. Yes, to cry out Moshe, as the Rebbe said, with an emes, sincerely, with with integrity, and do everything possibly we can to bring the Geula. And we do that through teaching people, teaching ourselves, preparing ourselves, acclimating ourselves, and living as we've discussed many times. I think that may be even more effective than Adin Teirah. But the idea is interesting, and, uh, and therefore I uh, shared it. Okay, that covers other. Now, guarding Truma. So let's start. What's the lesson? What do we learn? How do we build a Mishkan in our lives today? So Truma's central message is building a Mishkan. Right away it begins. Vayikchuli Truma, the by by Hashem, God speaks to Moshe, says, go to the people, Truma. Bring for me an offering. And this was the first official fundraising, crowdfunding uh, event where Moshe went, all the bring kesev, zov, and necheshas, gold, silver, copper, and all the 12 or 15 items used, materials used to build the mishkin. And then in a the few verses afterwards, what are we going to do with all these materials? And build for me. Also Li. Bring for me, Li for God. And build for me a sanctuary, a sacred place, a Mikdash, a holy place. And I will reside, I will dwell, among them, as the Shalom explains. Why doesn't it say It says build for me a, a, a temple, so it should be Loi. Shakhanti not loy in the temple. Where do we have b'seichem? He's not talking about people, because the purpose of the temple is that God resides within each one of us. Shanti B'Seich echad within every individual human being, every individual Jew, which is the whole purpose of the temple. In a maimer Truma in tavshin mem zayin. in the Pasha, truma mem zayin. the Rebbe cited a maimer from the Frida Rebbe, That says that even when they had a Beis Hamikdash, when there you could say the God dwelled in the temple, even then the Kavanah was also that through the temple in each person. It wasn't just in a physical building. That was just a channel, a type of prototype, so to speak. It was yes, God dwelled there in the Kodesh Kodashim, but it was meant to be a channel to channel into each person. Today we have the primary aspect, which is in the building that the 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 Shakanti Basehim within each one of us. Obviously, we aspire to and we pray for for the third base amidders, the permanent one. When then you can have the best of all worlds, where you have it both in a physical sense in your shalayim on the on the, the Harabais, on the Temple Mount. But at the same time, that doesn't mean it, it, it will take it away from us, God forbid. On the contrary, it will enhance that divine experience. The Shara Shamayim, the gate to heaven is that it's a bridge an interface for finding godliness within each one of us and in that zayin, memzayn mem zayin, that rabbi speaks about that each person he speaks also about children should build a mishkan in their own home that their house should become a base taita veyeduk midras a place of all three elements taita which is learning taita like the Audin in the holy of holies tfila which is Veda, aveda sa karbonas today Tefillah has become carbonized It came to medium is in place of the offerings, and milz Chasadim, like the shulchan, is all about being mashpia chesed, kindness, sustaining others, helping others, acts of goodness and kindness, and all the mitzvahs connected to milz Chasadim. That our home should become a mishkan. That was a very powerful emphasis. that Rebbe wrote a letter then, a letter both for adults and for children. Old Tav Shemem in this period in time. Okay, so, which would be exactly 35 years ago, right? 35 years ago. So, so that's a general lesson that we learn about building a mishkan in our lives today. And of course, the Maimer Baseligani, the, the foundational Maimer of the Rebbe, that, with which he began his leadership, in the year, Tafsin Yud when he said, Bosil the last mimer that was learned and delivered and published of the Friediker Rebbe, what is the central theme? Well, which the seventh generation accomplished, seventh generation from Avram, which was Moshe Rabbeinu. And now, in our time, the seventh generation of the Alter Rebbe, our mission is to finish the work and bring Rishachanti Bisecham in the full, permanent way of the entire world, being a mishkant, a sanctuary a dwelling place, a, a home for God in this lowest of worlds, which the Mishkin, of course, is, is, is personifies. So it's a central theme as well of the Rebbe's fullness, and leadership. And therefore, this week's parsha has tremendous lessons in that regard of what are we doing in that case, in that, uh, in that vein. So now, a few questions about the parsha, Dear Rabbi Jacobson, it's understood that we can't have the permanent third base amigdash until Hashem determines it's the proper time to send Mashiach, correct? As the Rambam says that Mashiach will then build the Beis HaMikdash in its place. But why can't we have a temporary mishkan like they used in the desert until they reached Israel and built a permanent Beis HaMikdash? In our history, there were times either there was no Beis HaMikdash or people weren't able to travel due to wars or natural disasters. And they were allowed to make a temporary mizbeach in their backyards called a a boma. Why can't we build a boma outside of 770 for the community to use? Well, we can. That's exactly the whole point. We build it through our homes, through your life. It's not about the physical building. That's what God will want. He'll want to have a physical building. We'll have that. In addition to every basic knesses and basic medish is a migdash ma'at. That's what it says in Yecheskel. It's a mini sanctuary. So we already have that. That's exactly what God told Yecheskel that when the Jews will go and go, how will they, so called, be able to continue connection? There's no base amigdash. He says, yes, amigdashmat. Build amigdashmat. Build, amigdash Build a mini sanctuary in a basic amigdash. And the Rebbe takes it even further based on the shalof. B'seich 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 Each one of us should be building it right now. If you haven't done so, Begin now or enhance it. And most importantly, act on it. Live your life. You are a walking sanctuary. So that's the answer to that question. Now why isn't there a physical one? A physical one you have to merit. The physical world has to be ready to have a base There's a reason the temple was destroyed. Because the people was not worthy. God didn't want to just have a temple that's just there. He wanted people to be worthy of that temple. When they sin as chinam. Which was the case in the Second Temple, which says the Second Temple was destroyed because of baseless hatred. God says, you're not united. How could I be dwelling among you? Well, you want me to just be in a building? What about you? You're part of it. You're the, essence, you're the essence of it, not just part of it. You're the center of it all. So that discusses, that explains the physicality of it. But ultimately we will merit to that, and that's going to be very shortly, and that's the base I mean the Shashlishi. But meanwhile, we have our work cut out for us and making a Vishakanti Basecham. And transforming the shtus de umaze, the insanity, the irrational behavior of the material tug that tempts us in this world, and transforming it to shtus de la which is the Aze Shitimdim, as he explains in Basiligani, transforming it to a super rational commitment and devotion to the divine that's even beyond just logic, as he explains in Basiligani. What was the showbread used? Why, what was the showbread used in the Mishkan? Was it ever eaten by someone, or was it just on display like in the museum? Yes, it was eaten by the Kahanim. How does the showbread express our potential to make Parnosa? Because the showbread lechem is mozin, it's sustenance. God blesses us with sustenance. So the showbread, the lechem aponim was exactly that. It was a symbol of the hashpah and transmission of all blessings, especially parnasa livelihood, to the entire world. So the Meneid represented light. The Mizbeach represented offering and connection. carbon Kiruv. And the, and, and the Lechem Aponim represents Hashpah. From there came transmission of all parnasa to the entire world. Since we don't have a mishkan today, what is the substitute we can use for showbread? Is it perhaps the challah we eat on Shabbos? That is correct. The challah can be a symbol of that, even though the challah is also a symbol of the mon but it's a symbol of sustenance. And the symbol is gemilis chasadim, as I mentioned. Every time you do kindness to someone, in a sense when you give them bread, bread can be physical bread, but it could also be financial help that helps them buy bread, which is symbol lechem, and is a symbol of all types of sustenance. That's exactly how we recreate lechem upon in our lives. In Baba Basa 25b, it says, if someone wants to be wealthy, they should pray facing north. Yatspin, yeah. The reason might be because the Shulchan upon him was on the north side of the Beis Amigdash. That is correct. That is the reason. One of the reasons. Even though we usually Daven facing east east, would it be okay at the end of Davening during Elenu if I turn north for five minutes to try this out? I just got my bill for property taxes and I think and I think I need some blessings from the north to help me pay it. An interesting question. Well, we pray east, that's correct. But remember, in davening, some people are not always facing east all the time. By shamanesas, definitely, and by certain parts of davening. I never heard that this would be a way to go about it. But I can't see anything to be hurt. If you want to try it a little, let's see what happens and tell me what the results are. Maybe we can share that. It would be a good way for helping other people pay their bills. But there's no question. Sufjan has an element of uh, hashpa, of transmission. So even though on one hand Sofan is connected to Gvura and Dharam South is connected to Chesed, but Gvura's is When you sweeten the Gvuras it brings an abundant flow, an intense Tagberis HaChayis, an intensity of Pannose, and Ashiris, as is explained in Chesidus. Okay. So we covered the other Truma. Let's cover now, let's go into a few other, a little follow-up. We'll do a follow-up now for Chav which was last week, last Monday. So let's do one of that, and then we'll do another few follow-ups. Feedback, I have a lot of different things to cover here. Okay. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I attended a Fabrengen this past week on Chov Be'i Shvat. So Chov Be'i Shvat is the, is the 22nd of Shvat, the yard site of the, of the Rabbitson Mushke, 20, um, 34 years ago. And heard a, so I attended a in past week, this past week, and heard a story about when the Rebbe wasn't feeling well and a doctor visited her house to help her. Afterward, the Rebbe found out and took money out of his drawer to pay the doctor. The reason this, de- this detail was told at the Fabrengon was to highlight how the Rebbe was an honest man and never took advantage of his leadership position to get free services. Let me just qualify. We know the Rebbe is an honest man. What you really mean is that the Rebbe's high level of integrity that he did not take advantage of the leadership position to get free services. That story reminded me of other stories. Once a dollars, the, the tailor who sewed a new kapote for the Rebbe, a new overcoat, a new kapote, a new kapote for the Rebbe, asked the Rebbe if he tried on the garment and if he was satisfied. And the Rebbe asked him if he received his check of payment for the garment on time. This was yet another case where the Rebbe was careful to do business honestly, and make sure when someone does their job and provides a service, they get paid on time. Okay, very nice. All of these stories are beautiful and remind us what a special holy person the Rebbe is. But then I started thinking about the services the Rebbe provided to us. All the sleepless nights, staying awake in his office, answering our letters. And I would add praying, crying, beseeching, Think about it. When we go to a concert or a lecture series, we first have to pay and buy a ticket. But all the times the Rebbe gave Fabrengens and siches, anyone could walk into 770 for free and hear beautiful Dvar And I would add, and even more than that. So I feel this isn't fair. And the Rebbe was doing his job and providing a great service to the community, but he wasn't getting paid to do his job. He was doing it for free. And I should add, the amount he got paid was also quite a low salary. I think he got paid the same salary he got back in 1940, 41. That's what I've heard many times. I'm just adding some footnotes to your note. What can I do now, even after Gimel Thomas, to pay the Rebbe, even a small token token amount, for the services he provided me? I remember one year on Yutes Kislev and Yutz the Rebbe gave out free copies of the Tanya. I got one just as thousands of others got one. But I also want to do business honestly, and I want to pay for it. Any suggestions you make are appreciated. Thank you. And by the way, you also deserve to get paid for doing this amazing Sunday Night Torah podcast. Last year I sent an anonymous donation, and believe it, I'll do it again this year. Okay, I'm honored that you put me in the same breath, but even though it's quite different. But thank you. Yeah, the answer to your question is a very straightforward answer. There's number one. There's the idea of ma'imid. What is ma'imid? That we always people chassidim always sent money to the rebbe without any. Uh, it was called uh, not earmarked, discretionary. That the rebbe could use it as he's fit for his own needs. That does not change. You can continue doing it. And we should continue doing it. The question is where to send it. So I heard from Rebbe Beryl Yunik back after Gimel Thomas. He said, find a shliach that you respect and trust, a shlich is like the mishaleach, he represents the mishaleach, the Rebbe, and send them money. So I would say, like, follow following. the way we do it is by paying for and helping support causes that you know the Rebbe would, the Rebbe either institute or the Rebbe is, represents the Rebbe's work. And there's plenty of different opportunities in that regard. Find something your heart is close to, something you trust, and send money, that, that the Rebbe would, if you ask the Rebbe right now, I want to pay you for a fabrenya, that's what the Rebbe would tell you to do. Now if you sent in a check, the Rebbe would use it for his activities and for his work or whatever it is. So the, those two things are both critical and there are many ways to do so. Remember, the Rebbe is represented by his work, by his Torah, by his mission in life, the mission of spreading Torah and Chassidus. Whenever anyone spoke to the Rebbe, they said, I want a picture of the Rebbe or an or, uh, autograph, the Rebbe said, You want a connection with me? Learn what I learned. Do what I do. That's the way to continue and repay our debt if we could ever do such a thing, but at least in the minimal way. Additionally, that's financially. Additionally, to do whatever you can to be a real, sincere representative of the Rebbe, an ambassador wherever you go, to teach people what you learned from the Rebbe, to teach people chassidus, to spread the Rebbe's tetes and directives, which of course is tetes, tetes and directives. And that way you're also, there's nothing better than that. You're fulfilling, that's why the Rebbe spent all that time doing so, because he wanted us to learn from him, to do exactly the same, just as the Rebbe gave out dollars, gave out stocking. And the list goes on. If you want to put your mind to it, you'll find many, many ideas. Here are just a few of them. Okay. Another, since we're talking feedback, let me do another piece of feedback. <clears throat> I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your classes. You are the perfect rabbi to do what you do. In addition to your vast knowledge of the Rebbe's teachings and Chassidus and Tanya, your secular knowledge, such as poetry and psychology, and your understanding of woman's psyche make you highly relatable to Jews coming from the secular world. Since I discovered your classes, I listened to them nonstop when I am at home I'm listening from the beginning of your classes from three three years ago, while also keeping current with your new classes. Sometimes I listen to your classes two or three times because I have trouble understanding everything because of so much Yiddish. I'm very determined to learn, but I'm sincerely concerned that knowledge of Chassidus will not spread forth like wellsprings because those of us not from Brooklyn find the lack of translated Hebrew and Yiddish especially will discourage people from learning God forbid that you think this is criticism. On the contrary, I'm trying to help you reach more Jews. On one of your tapes, you made the main points in Yiddish, and at the end of the tape, you said that the main point was blank. All Yiddish. It was the second time listening to this class, and when you told the main point in Yiddish again, I just burst into tears and sobbed. I felt that I would never be able to understand because I don't know Yiddish. As I mentioned already, I've been listening to your beginning tapes, and when you spoke in Hebrew and Yiddish, you're usually translated. Would it be possible to go back to translating more like you did before? as a teacher, I understand how it feels to be engrossed and excited teaching subject matter, but having to stop my flow of the lesson to have to translate some things into Spanish. How difficult it is for me to have to flow, stop the flow to have translate some things into Spanish. It is easy to forget the translation. Fortunately, my students are in the class with me, and we can and they can ask me to go back and translate. Unfortunately, most of us are watching your classes online do not have the ability to ask you to go back and translate something. That is why I respectfully ask you to translate more, especially the Yiddish. I'm grateful to you for your unique unique classes and your patience in reading this. Yeah, thank you. Firstly, thank you very much for your kind words. Very touching and humbling. And I totally accept that I don't see this as critique. I do make a concerted effort to translate everything I say, but it could very well be that sometimes you take things for granted and maybe I just use the Hebrew and Yiddish and don't translate. I will definitely take what you said right to heart and will make a very strong attempt to make sure to translate everything. And please let me know if I'm improving, if I do better and I absolutely believe exactly what you're saying. I don't think language should be at all ever prohibitive. Things should be translated, people should be able to receive the message and not have to struggle with words. This is not the go- my goal is not to teach people Hebrew Yiddish, that's not the purpose of these classes. If you learn them, great, but still there are plenty of people that do not know that language and to bring it into actual language, which is why when I wrote Toward a Meaningful Life, I was very adamant there, I use no words that in any way could be prohibitive. As a matter of fact, if you go to our website, MeaningfulLife.com, there too, even though we may use Hebrew, we'll always translate. Although on HasidusApply.com, there's probably less, not everything is translated. But I will try my best, and I thank you for that, and it's a very good point to be made. It actually, even though we're already ending the month of Shvat, but in Rosh the it says in Devarim, the beginning of the fifth book of Chumash, that this is the day when Moshe began. Il advar Moshe he explained well the Torah, and Rashi says beshivim he translated it all into seventy languages, and the Rebbe makes a big emphasis on this that Terech Siddis is being translated into all languages because it's not the language; it's the message, it's the theme, it's the spirit of the idea that wants to be conveyed. So I really appreciate it, and thank you again. <coughs> okay. So another follow-up is not to this class, but my Wednesday night class, I do a Wednesday night class, which is generally more universal themes and more universal language. So this past Wednesday I did a class which received a tremendous amount of feedback from, from many circles. The title was Did the Feminist Mo- Movement Kill Femininity? I think their title killed feminism. And as I said, it's a class you can go to MeaningfulLife.com and see it's it's prominently displayed. I'm not going to go over what I said in the class. I'll just read someone's follow-up comment to it. I'm a Jewish woman born in 1954 who was a young adult in the beginning of the feminist movement. I was an innocent Jewish girl, happy to live a traditional life until I read Kate Millett's writings, at which point I became enraged at men and and at the world. Wouldn't it be more accurate to entitle your feminist video, Has Feminism Destroyed Femininity? Please note, when the feminist leaders, Gloria Steinem, Kate Millett, etc., were first pushing women to stop staying home, to take care of the family, they gave the reason that since so many marriages were beginning to end in divorce, women should go out to work and also get a profession and marry later so they wouldn't be poverty-stricken when they would get divorced. They They assumed marriage would end in divorce, they also fiercely put down traditional mothers who stayed home to take care of their husband and children. They put down traditional housewives who stayed home and had children as being barefoot and pregnant, quote-unquote, as if they were hillbillies and stupid. The feminists didn't value having children at all. I'm going to edit some of this because some of it a little very explicit, so the one who wrote this, please, I apologize, but just for the audience... The feminist leaders were not just out to help women have financial security. They hated men and blamed women's and society's problems on white men. These attitudes are still prevalent on college campuses today. Later, I followed Kate Millett and was invited to her farm in Poughkeepsie in the summer along with other women. Okay, I'm going to skip a little. That Kate was so immoral that she would do things that were really horrendous, which I avoided and made sure not to be participated in. She used the girls as free labor to do agricultural work on the farm. She also used them to help her steal. I remember one night she told everyone to put ashes on their faces so they wouldn't be seen when they would go to the farm down the road to steal the farmer's bricks. I declined to go. So this so-called intellectual author and leader of the feminist movement, whom hundreds of thousands followed and who was instrumental in damaging the fabric of traditional marriage in American life, was actually an immoral thief who turned others into thieves with no loyalty even to her own. I saw that Kate and her girlfriend would also make anti-Semitic comments. I left as soon as I could. I believe it was Gloria Steinman who coined the phrase, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Please note the feminist movement went hand in hand with the emergence of widespread immoral sexual behavior starting in the late 60s and early 70s. There was a popular song that went, if you're, going to, if you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. For those who come to San Francisco, summertime will be love in there. Meaning an unbridled orgy with no limitations on who people were having relations with. Now, of course, San Francisco, like New York, is a major center of immoral behavior. The immorality among men and women who supposedly was supported by the use of birth control pills, which of course led to many babies not being born. At the same time, drugs became rampant in my New Jersey public high school. Many kids died or were brain damaged by drugs, including my own brother, who died at a Fourth of July party in 1970. I later became a balas enough said, but please know that the feminist movement was started and maintained by women who stood for and encouraged behavior that the Torah forbids. Let's not hold them up as heroes. Okay, as again, this is in response to a discussion I had in a different program, but I think fitting, so I included it as well in this uh, discussion here. Okay, so now we have some other follow-up. The whole issue of abuse in the past week over going over a month now continues to come and become at the forefront of people's discussions, so I cannot ignore it in that sense. I just want to see in what order. So before I get into any other follow-up, I want to do this. Is there a connection between Mrs. Lapine's murder, 30 years ago, this week, and the Rebbe's stroke three weeks later? Ooh, okay, that's a heavy question. So, firstly, this Thursday and the second day of Shvat of other Aleph, I should say, second day of other Aleph, will be the 30th yartzei of the tragic murder of Mrs. Lapine here in Crown Heights, which. I remember and so many of us vividly. First of all, the horrendous circumstances of a person who came here, a beautiful soul with her husband, gave their lives for Yiddishkeit. Anyone who knew her knew her husband. I see him often, and I just can't. I mean, every time I have these emotions, and then to be murdered in that fashion. And then, to top it all off, I don't even know if that's the right expression. We'll never forget the Rebbe on that day when he came out to the Levaya, walked on Kingston Avenue all the way, and how he honored her. And then the words of the Rebbe a week later, at the end of Shiva. Very hard to repeat, but he's speaking about a mother being taken. Not only is was taken, but she's taken from her children, which is the most painful thing for a mother. But then the Rebbe used an expression which I never heard ever. I don't think the Rebbe ever used it. At least to my recollection where he quoted the book of kehelis where it says be careful when you speak about god because god is in heaven you're on earth so keep your words mu'atim, to the minimum and the rebbe said even though the verse says that still how can we not speak to me when i heard that i remember saying to myself wow that means the rebbe would literally took it so personally The Rebbe took, because she would not be in this neighborhood were it not for the Rebbe. The Rebbe's neighborhood, the Rebbe said. That's where it happened. And for many, it was a very, a terrible moment because also the Rebbe was so then speaking about the Geula is literally about to come, and then suddenly this sechah, or the sechah, this event and the sechah that followed it. Now I remember hearing those about Kehelas, which is like God is basically, the Pusuk is basically saying, you know, God is in control, be careful what you say. And the Rebbe is putting himself on the line, which is what a Rebbe does. So the messerious nefesh of that is unbelievable. Just like Moshe to put himself on the line, reminding the Sicha of Tav Shemem Zayin Simchas that amazing Sicha, why Moshe broke the tablets in order to save the Jews and said, erase my name from the Teda. Meaning he's giving away his own spiritual life, not just physical life. Rebbe's Messias Nefesh for his people. And then three weeks, a little more than three weeks later, Chavzayin Odr Aleph. This was Bezodr Aleph. So we're talking here 25 days later was the stroke that dark Monday night. So I can't, none of us have the right to be able to make connections. These are God's mysterious ways. But it's hard to avoid when you hear about the proximity. And uh, I don't want to, Again, say anything on that because it's just too too much. I don't think it's my authority or ability to even comment on that. I will, however, say that a rebbe's life, his entire life, is dedicated to his people. And when someone is hurt like that, it's like when it says that that uh, that Maglin rabbi Imei, that when a when a student is sent off to golahs, to exile, displaced in a, in a city of refuge. Rabbi you send his teacher with him Moshe remained with the people in the midbar in the wilderness a Rebbe remains with his people does not forsake his sheep a shepherd as Moshe never forsake any even one sheep so is it Mrs. Lapine or is it reflective of the entire world not yet being literally fully ready for the Geula even though the Rebbe said it's ready but I mean to say it didn't happen actually is the the Rebbe stroke and the subsequent events connected to that. The Rebbe did tell us, do everything you can. I did everything I can. So I've spoken about this many times, that the ultimate message and lesson is to us. What are we doing about it? So instead of analyzing the connections, which is very intriguing, of course, and very, uh, I don't want to say, to say intriguing, it may be not the right word either, but you get the idea. But the most important thing is to take away the lesson. The Rebbe, God forbid, the Rebbe was turning the clock back. He was crying out like a Rebbe cries out for a tragedy. A tragedy is a tragedy. We're not going to minimize it just because the, the berurim are finished and the Gula is about to come. Clearly, there's still things to be done. So I see it as more of a wake-up call when you see the beautiful things are beautiful, when you see even the painful things are meant to be a catalyst that catapults us when we hear about this pain 30 years later remind ourselves of what happened and the Rebbe's pain in it. And then three weeks later, 25 days later. So to me, it's a wake-up call. What are we doing to fill this gap? It's like when the Rebbe spoke about those that had a custom after the Holocaust to leave a chair empty at this seder table. And the Rebbe said, why leave it empty? Bring a Jew in that wasn't been at a seder and fill the chair. Fill the void. Don't just remember the void and the vacuum. And the same thing here. We can cry about it and talk about the sadness. But let's fill that void and you fill the void by doubling and tripling and quadrupling and as many times as over over our efforts, our relentless efforts to bring the ge'ula by living ge'ula dik, by living up to the mandate that the Rebbe gave us, the v'shechanti b'seicham in this final generation, the seventh generation, and bringing the ge'ula and then we'll have Mrs. Lapine and all the tzaddikim and sitkonyas and of course the Rebbe back with us physically that is what this should all be a catalyst for. So yes, there are the connections, there are the sad parts, but as I said before, Concealment is only in order to elicit from us more ingenuity, more creativity, more strength to find the father that's hiding from us, the concealed parent. And we do that by intensifying our efforts. That is what this should be calling us to do. And the family should be consoled, should find that strength I was just sitting on Shabbos with the oldest son of the Lepine children. And what shall I say? We've been several hours. This Thursday, the Yotzeit, there will be an event, I think, Wednesday night, where I'll be fabringing as well there. Also began a building, a mikveh, May Peset, which is MayPessy, I believe, .com will be built in Columbus, um, Columbus, Missouri, where her son is a shliach. So there's ways to help the family and also help the Rebbe's cause and causes in every possible fashion. Okay. With that, I will go to do one more follow-up on a different note completely, being that, as I said, so much has come in on this topic, even though I'd rather go to another topic, but what shall I say? Let me go to this. This is the topic of dealing with abuse. Hi, Robbie Jacobson. Thank you so much for all that you you and your organization are doing. The only reason I'm writing this to you is because of anonymity. This is the first time ever that I'm addressing this in any way. A long time ago, my family was experiencing a severe trauma. During that time, a parent on a few occasions touched me inappropriately. Those few times happened very close to each other and then stopped. As far as my knowledge goes, this never happened to me before this family trauma, which greatly affected my entire family, including my parent, And once it stopped, it never happened again. Aside from dealing with the family trauma, this further deepened the trauma I experienced and left me extremely confused, hurt, and angry. I then told myself that I was imagining, exaggerating, hallucinating, that it didn't happen. And if it did, it's not so terrible, and that if it did happen, it could have been far worse, and that I'm okay. I forgave that parent with what I thought was my whole heart, and I thought I made peace with it. I told myself that my parent behaved that way only because of what was going on then, and that the parent got a hold of self once the parent realized that they could be hurting me. I love that parent and have a great relationship, and I'm so thankful for that parent. I thought I moved on, I never confronted my parent, and none of us ever thought, never, n- ever, none of us ever brought it up, which makes me question it ever, if it ever really happened, but I was okay. I made a pact with myself to never reveal this to anyone and pretty much take it with me to the grave. A while after I got married, Baruch Hashem, and we started a beautiful family, my spouse has no idea about this and also had a great relationship with my parent, who is an amazing person. I hope my writing doesn't detract from that. I feel for the victims whose traumas, for sure, are far greater than my own. So I feel very selfish that the story brought up my own pain, which is surely very minor compared to the victims in this story. I don't want to rock the boat of my life. Bringing this up to my spouse or parent or anyone could cause relationships to sour and confrontations which I want to avoid. I dream of my parent acknowledging and apologizing to me, but I'm afraid of being denied and told it's all in my head or ruining our relationship, so I refrain. I will just have to reprocess this on my own, and writing this is part of doing that. I hope I'm not hurting myself more by doing this. Time will tell. With this story coming up, I wonder how careful I need to be with my children around that parent. I highly doubt anything of the sort will happen, but I'm still in denial about myself, so maybe I do need to exercise more caution. Again, I love my parent, and we have an amazing relationship other than this short saga which I really managed to put aside and forget about for many years before the recent events came to the surface. I really want to continue being on good terms, so I protect the parent I love so much, but I also need to lick and bandage my wounds, which I still question how much they exist and how exaggerated they are. Exaggerated they are. Thanks again. Well, you know, this touches upon, if I may comment on a big question that is out there that I hear time and again, Is this an option? Is this just delaying the process and really creating even deeper problems, not addressing it properly or minimizing it, as you describe? And some say, look, if some people want to do that, who are we to tell them what to do? So I don't think we should be aggressive in forcing people to have to acknowledge what happened to them. I think we have to create a safe environment where everyone can come to speak, and I'm glad that you're able to write even this, which is why I read it. So I'm not here to tell you you must address it. If you don't address it, you're going to have bigger problems. I do think that if a parent did something, you have to be careful. Just say it can never happen again, I would not make that statement. So I'd definitely be more vigilant. That doesn't mean you have to go make a big announcement and embarrass anyone, but definitely be careful. That I would definitely say. As far as your way of, rec- of reconciling or ultimately dealing with it, all I can say is be open with yourself, speak to others as you're doing somewhat here, and just allow yourself to be honest. Every- people heal in different ways. There's no one way, one way fits all. What we want to avoid is people feeling the need to repress their feelings and being tortured and suffering because they don't want to rock the boat that they should feel free to be able to speak, have someone to speak to, feel safe. Because a big part of abuse is not just the abuse, is the lack of safety, the lack of trust, the lack of an environment where you can feel comfortable to be. That is the most important thing. But how a person shares, and what they want to share, everyone in their own way. It's just like in therapy, you don't, even if you know that something happened to someone, not necessarily abuse, anything. Trauma, we don't come in with a sledgehammer and a full-out assault on a human psyche. You tread carefully. Remember, part of dignity, which which is what abuse defiled, is also respecting a person's ability to speak. And sometimes denial is the way people cope. What you want, again, is to create a safety that they don't feel they have to hide, and they have to be ashamed and feel guilty, that they can't speak. And it's a very subtle but critical point which I see go both extremes. There are those that just say, forget about it, move on. Many people say, I wish I could forget about it and move on. You think I want to hold on to this? I want to have nightmares every night. And then there's the other extreme. No, you must take, here's a, You must go out there and talk about it. Then. No, there's no must. Every person heals in their own way. And it's important to make that emphasis. And that's why this, this component is not being addressed enough. Again, we definitely want to allow anyone to speak. Do not have a culture of silence and a culture of cover-ups. And all that comes with that, which is even worse than the, as they say, the silence is worse than the rape. But then let people speak at their own pace. You don't force. You allow. You give permission. You give them the license. You give them the freedom to do so. Another uh, person writes, this is a longer one, so I think I'm going to skip this for now. There's a lot, oh boy. Okay, you know what? I'm going to right now go to, let's see, where are we here? There's so many questions, I don't even know where to begin. Let me go to this question and we'll conclude. That's what we're going to do. And anything that I haven't covered, I'll continue to do. Thank God, there's next week... And coming weeks, even if Gula comes, I'm sure there'll be a need for chassidus applied um, by all of us. And hopefully we won't have to talk about negative things, only positive things. So let's go to the chassidus question. I just always feel bad. That's what I, sh- what shall I say? Can- could you please, Rabbi, here are, Hi Rabbi Jacobson, could you please explain the concept of a love v'leilamidesov? Okay. So, there's a famous Maimar Chazal, which actually is still being looked for where exactly it says. It says in Sifri, Isa B Sifri, on the Posuk, a Khul Khareno love. Those are all those that call a love to him. So the Sifri says, a love, You're calling to him, to God, not to his attributes, not to his chesed and gvura and so on, the kha Gvura, but to him alone. So Chassidus Rebbe already fo- points out that with the Sifri is not we haven't found the Sifri, but it's brought in a lot of svar in this expression, svarim of Rashanim and so on. So we want to explain the concept. Well, on a very basic level, similar to what the Tzema writes in Derech Mitzvacha in Sherish Mitzvah Satfila, from the Shalosh Shivas Rivosh, that there was a makubal, and the, another person told the makubal, a great sage said. He, pray, he prays, knowing that Mukubolim have all the different intentions of Kavonis, that when they say kail, it means Chesed, and there's elikim means Gvura, and so on. I pray like a child. And sometimes that's brought in association. Now, obviously, the Atsamah Chesed goes on to explain that's not God forbid that Mukubolim don't follow this, uh, this edict. Of course, there's only one God. It's not that you pray to his midis. You associate, for example, if God blessing you with, with chesed, with parnosah, so you are, you're praying to Elov, to God, not to chesed, but through the lens of chesed. If something else, if God blesses you in a different way, or God, let's say, helps you be victorious, you pray to the name Tzvokiz, which is connected to tzava, to, to battle, to victory. So it's not that you pray, it's only always one God, but there are different attributes, like lefimaisi and nikra. God is called by different actions that he does. And there goes a whole discussion, it's a fundamental thing, in a fundamental concept in Chassidus has discussed many, many places, how God is one with his attributes, but we never replace God with his attributes, God forbid. That's a general idea, I love Leila Midesov. So though they're the ten spheres. And those are the instruments, the divine instruments. God is one with his with Sviris, with the Chayuis, uh, the eris, and the Kalim, as the al interprets the energies and containers of the Sviris. Or the way that Eizal interprets the Moichen and Midas. God is one with them. Same thing, He's one with his attributes, but he's not his attributes. So we're talking about God, but God has seen through the Sphidus, and the different explanations, actually this explains how the Sphidus work, are the Sphidus elakus, or are they the kalim, are they the oedis? Different opinions by the mukabalim. when we say Sphidus, what are they exactly? Anyway, but then there's another aspect, which is brought in Hayyam and actually in last year's Basiligani, chapter 11, so in the maima Tavshin Chafalaf, the Rebbe um, brought, br- brings three interpretations on a love, Leila Medesov. The interpretation of the Ramak, Ramosher Kardavira, and the Pardis. The interpretation of the Balsham, the interpretation of the Alta Rebbe. So let's just focus on that. So in the first Mimer, especially in Basiligani, Tovshik Tov 1961. So the interpretation of the Ramak is that you're talking a love to the Oiris. The Oir is one with the Ebersher Meina Moir. That's the divine energy. Valaila but not the Kalim. That's what La Valaila The Bashamta takes it deeper. A love Valaila means not the Kalim themselves, but the energy that sustains the containers, not the energy that vitalizes them. We know the containers, like the body, is not created by the soul. The soul vitalizes it, energizes it. So the balshamta touches with the Shemus, he touches. That we're talking about a love, the Shedesh HaKelim, which means the divine energy that is the essence of these containers. And the Alta Rebbe, brings in says that he goes even higher, that we're talking here on Atmus. A love, a Leila Atmus, so Atzmus, which is higher than all of them, and therefore it actually unites them all. Nimna nimna nimnois. The Rebbe says that that's the Kiddush of Chassidus Chabad. In chapter, and then the chapter three in the Maimant of Shekha he says, in Kabbalah, the focus is the shamus, the names of God are the Odas, the energies, which is a Leel and Desov. In Chsidus Klal is the chidush, is the Chais of the Kelim themselves, which are higher than the energies. And then the Chidush of the Altar Rebbe, Chabad, it goes on Atzmus, Nimna, Nimnois, who's beyond paradoxes and joins all paradoxes and he connects the Eidus and the kalim. That's the Rebbe's point. And so there you have a lot of in and different different interpretations. What it means to us, bottom line, is that uh, we, our mission, as I said before, especially in the seventh generation, is to join them all together. We want to take the structure of existence, which consists of containers. Very structure, the energy within it, which is the divine energy within the structure, and connect it all to ihu, to eloh. To the Atzmus itself, which means making a dira dira a love, but that it should completely permeate and imbue all the emotions, all the attributes, all the way down to this world, a structure of this world which is built by the building blocks, the divine building blocks of the Esses And that's the joining of the Atzmus, Eir, and Kaili. So, Guf, Nishama, and the Etzem. That connects them all together. And with that, we shall conclude this episode 390 of "My Life Si applied every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone have a very frail Genheishud, maybe transform anything that's negative into the greatest joy. We should only know joy, and we shouldn't know any more negative, only joy, and jump into the goal of a simples Ala the Gula Hamitis Vashleima, in the final and complete redemption. Thank you. This program is brought to you by my life. Hasidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at hasidusapplied.com donate.